Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father, we ask you to join us. Enlighten our minds. May we uh, come to a deeper knowledge of you, your kingdom, your methods. May we be more effective in spreading this message of your character of love. And may you come soon that we can see you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I've got this letter in the mail, uh, snail mail this week, and I thought I'd share it with you. It says, Dear Dr. Jennings, I've been studying two sets of your DVDs, Healing the Mind and and God in Your Brain. Thank you for bringing the truth about God to the Adventist church. It is such a blessing to know the truth about God. I was baptized when I was 12 years old. I am now 83. Have lived most of my life in fear of God and the fire of hell. I pray God will keep you safe as you confront the lies about God in and out of the church. So I I thought that was a nice letter. We are doing uh, lesson number two in the uh, quarterly, the book of James. And the title this week is Perfecting Our Faith. Perfecting our faith. And the memory text is out of Hebrews 12, too. And the NIV version says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And uh, the context here, Paul had just finished giving a long list of, of patriarchs and, and heroes from the Bible who had, had been victorious through faith, and then he goes on and gives us this, uh, this admonition here, this challenge. So the question then to us is, first question, what is faith? How is it that Christ authors and then perfects our faith, and what methods does God use to achieve that? So, any thoughts? What is faith? Okay, which which means what? That's a good Bible text. What's it mean? Believe in what you know ain't so. Is that what faith is, or is faith simply just trust? Uh, my view, of course, is faith is established on evidence, not proclamations. I had a patient once who uh, was struggling with some anxiety issues, and she came into session once, and she told me, all my friends keep telling me that all you need to do is trust Jesus. Just trust Jesus. And she goes, but Dr. Jennings, I can't do it. And I looked at her, and I said, of course you can't. And she was shocked because she knew I was a Christian. Now, I'm, she was expecting me to say the same thing as everybody else. And I said, let me ask you this. You're in the mall, and a stranger came up and tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, let me have the keys to your car and the keys to your house. You can trust me. Would you give them to him? She goes, no way. I said, if you can't trust a stranger with the keys to your car and keys to your house, how do you expect to trust the stranger with the keys to your life? That's why the Bible says life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and thou sent. It is foolish to tell people to trust somebody they do not know, isn't it? Okay. So our challenge is to help people to get to know and this is what God has done through time. He has revealed himself in ways for us to get to know him. Trust or faith is established by experience, evidence of the trustworthiness of the person or being you're interacting with. Jesus is, why is he the author of our faith? The author of our trust? Any thoughts on that? The originator of our faith? The originator of our trust? Because Jesus is a member of the Godhead through whom all the evidence comes. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So when you look into creation, you see any evidence for God's trustworthiness? Jesus is the one who wrote it there. He is the one who interacted with the people throughout human history, the member of the Godhood who left infinity and entered linear time to interact with us. He is the pillar of fire and the cloud and the rock that Israel interacted with. He is the one who talked to Moses in the burning bush. He became human, incarnate, and lived among us to reveal God's character to us. He voluntarily surrendered his life to heal and restore his creation. He demonstrated he would rather die than use his power to stop us and take away our freedom from killing him. Think that through. Can you trust someone who, with all power when you know they would never use that power even to protect themselves? So Jesus authors our faith by creating us, revealing the truth about himself, the Father, the God's methods, and leaves us free to make choices. That's how he authors our faith. How does he perfect our faith? He pours his life into us. Pours his life into us? Other thoughts? Well, I'm going to read to you from my paraphrase, uh, the uh, memory text. I'm going to start back in chapter 11, verse 32. 
and go on through chapter 12, verse 13, and see if this gives you a, a, a view of what Paul is trying to say here, what was happening, what he's describing, what he's saying to the people, and how our faith gets perfected. And how much more do I have to say? How many more lives do I have to recount? I don't need to remind you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through their trust in God, conquered kingdoms, administered God's healing methods, received the promised blessing, shut lion's mouth, cooled the heat of the flames, escaped being killed by the sword, had their weakness turned into strength and became unstoppable in battle, annihilating God's enemies. Women had their dead loved ones resurrected and brought back to them. Others were tortured and refused to compromise the truth to gain their freedom, so they will gain the resurrection of life. Some were mocked, others beaten, while still others were put into shackles or imprisoned. Some were stoned, others sawed into two, in two, and so others put to death by the sword. They lived in poverty, wearing animal skins, and were constantly ridiculed and mistreated. This, sel- this selfish, sick world was not worthy of them. They lived in desolate places, wandering in desert and mountains and hiding in caves. All of these were commended for their trust in God, yet none of them received the fulfillment of all that was promised. But don't get discouraged. God has planned something much better for us that they and we together will be perfectly healed and rejoice together in the earth made new. Therefore, since we are surrounded with so much evidence of God's goodness and so many people have experienced God's healing power that comes through trust, let us rid ourselves of everything that obscures our view of God and selfishness with its desires that so easily distract and damage, and let us diligently finish the treatment course laid out for us. Let us fix our minds on Jesus, the perfect revelation of God who establishes and fully matures our trust in God. Jesus, for the joy of healing and restoring God's creation, endured the cross, nullifying its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider the significance of all Christ has done. The all-powerful creator permitted his creatures to torture and kill him rather than use his power against them. So don't get tired or give up or lose heart. In your struggle against selfishness, you have not yet had to lay down your life so that others might live. And you have forgotten that God loves you as his children. For the scripture says, My child, don't make fun of the Lord's treatment, and don't get discouraged when he sets you straight, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he works to heal everyone who becomes his child. Endure difficulties as opportunities for growth. God is treating you as his children. For what father doesn't want his his children to be healthy and grow and mature, and what child is not disciplined by his father? If you do not experience God's working to heal, mature, and improve you, and God works to heal everyone, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons and daughters. You have rejected his offer of kinship. Think about it. We have all had human fathers who instructed and corrected us, and we love and respect them for it. How much more should we willingly participate in the healing plan that the father of all intelligent beings has brought and live? Our fathers work with us and taught us for just a few years the best they could, but God works to heal us for eternity that we may partake of his perfect goodness and love. No discipline or therapy is enjoyable at the time, but painful. But if intelligently cooperated with, it results in healing of mind, development of Christ-like character, and peace of heart. Therefore, stiffen your upper lip and straighten your spine and redouble your determination to stay the healing course. Remove the obstacles to your recovery so that the infection of selfishness may not permanently deform your character, but rather you will be healed. Thoughts? What did you hear? And if you were following along in your version, do you think that I got the essence of what he was saying? How does he perfect our faith? What do you hear? How is our faith perfected? There's a law at work here. When I say law, what do you hear? When I use the word law in this class, what am I talking about? Principle. Principle, design protocol upon which life works, like law of gravity, law of love, law of liberty. What law? There's a law at work here. By beholding, we become changed. changed. Yes, absolutely. Another one. There's a couple of them. So there's there's another one. The law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, what do you have to do? You have to exercise it. If you don't exercise it, it doesn't get stronger. If you want uh, if you want your faith to get stronger, then what do you have to do? You have to exercise it. So then when we are faced with problems or challenges that we in our own strength have difficulty handling, it requires us to exercise our trust or faith in God. Any thoughts about that? 
one of the human experiences that, that, that bonds people together like no other is war, combat. Soldiers in combat come out, and you've heard the bonds of brotherhood. They have lifelong bonds of trust after being in combat together. Why is that the case? Any, any thoughts on that? Sharing an experience. Sharing an experience. It's important, yes. Their lives and their care. Ah, uh, there we go. You see, they're in a circumstance in combat that they can't handle on their own. It's overwhelming. And they find themselves where they literally have to trust somebody else with their life. Multiple occasions where they're putting their life in the hands. They trust somebody to have their back. And that person doesn't let them down. He's there for them. They see that person go into harm's way for them, to protect them, to help them. So they have an experience not only of trusting them, but the experience of their comrade working with their due diligence the best they're able to help them and protect them. Sometimes dying for them. And sometimes dying for them. Yes. This, this forges trust. Are we, is, that, is there an analogy there in our experience with life problems here in our relation with God? Do we ever ch- find ourselves in a position where we're challenged and have an opportunity to put our life in God's hands? Do we, do we struggle to do it? It's sometimes hard. Of course, I understand the law of friction. Without friction, you usually don't go forward. But I got to thinking about this. Before sin, when God walked and talked with Adam and Eve, the way of teaching us wasn't, I can't, I can't find any friction or anything going on with the way he taught us then. And what was different about what was happening in Eden that's happening today? What's the major difference? Sin. Well, okay, you say sin. Yeah. And where, where does sin occur? Where's the action point for sin? In the heart and mind, okay? So here's another one of those laws, if you want. Once there is brokenness, there are no options that are pain-free. You have a broken leg, and you don't do anything with it. You just leave it. You get chronic pain and disability. You go have the orthopedic surgeon put a pin in it and go to physical therapy. The entire process is painful. If somebody has been emotionally or uh, uh, molested, abused, exploited, cheated upon, whatever, taken advantage of, and they've been injured emotionally. There is no option now that is pain-free. Not dealing with it will cause uh, all kinds of pain and problems. Addressing it and dealing with it to bring healing is also painful. Loss of a loved one, painful. Dealing with it, not dealing with it, you can't avoid. So pain is inevitable in this world that we live in of sin. But misery is optional. Misery happens when we refuse to deal effectively with the pain. So the big difference, of course, now is God isn't dealing with perfect beings who are unbroken. He's dealing with beings who have infected hearts and minds with brokenness, and he's bringing them towards healing and restoration. So there's a painful process in that recovery. So if we think about what is it that strengthens our faith, it's the exercise or the exertion or dealing with problems. Now, Problems are like weights. And think about after an injury going to a physical therapist. And maybe he starts out with, with only one pound weights. One pound weights. And he will start really, really light. And you work those one pound weights. And then after you work the one pound weights, he comes back and you're at two pound weights. And then after you work those, you come back, you're at four pounds and then eight pounds and then 12 pounds and 20 pounds. And then after you're doing this, the devil speaks into your ear and says, look, He keeps weighing you down with burden after burden. doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter what successes you get. He's always going to put more on you. He's always going to bear you down with more. He's trying to crush you. You shouldn't go back to this guy. How many times in life when you have a problem and you're victorious over the problem, you've struggled, you've you've been challenged, you've risen to the occasion, you've overcome, and, and a bigger problem then hits you. And then you've overcome that one and a bigger problem. And the devil's there to say, see... You can't get ahead with God. He's always trying to burden you. And it doesn't matter what problems you overcome. He's going to hit you with another. He's going to hit you with another. He's trying to crush you. You shouldn't go to him. How many do this? It's understanding what's happening. Why does the physical therapist keep increasing the weight? Why? To crush you? To strengthen you for your purpose, for your recovery. 
for our for 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 restoration and independence and, and complete autonomy. It's the only way for us to overcome. Do you understand? <clears throat> the only way for our recovery is with our active participation in the process. Active participation. Anybody want to? Before I tell you, anybody want to cogitate on that and say, "Well, why can't God just use His power to go into my head and just boom and fix me? Why can't He do that?" It's not part of his character, but why? What's the consequence? What happens? Does he have the ability? Does he have the power to do that? But what happens if he does? It destroys the individuality of the person. He over, it would be like taking and overriding you with an entire new, that, that you haven't valued, you haven't embraced, you don't cherish, it's not what you want to do, it's not who you are, and so to make that a part of your system, it has to go against your individuality and your will, unless you're an active participant choosing it. And he won't do it. The only way for our recovery is our individual, personal, active involvement choosing God's methods in our life. Participating and trusting Him. Yes. So self-governance wouldn't be something he would just put on you. You would you would have to develop it yourself. And so the last fruit of the Spirit, yes, is self-governance or self-control. That when the Holy Spirit has his way in our life, he sets us free. Once we're recovered, it's like working with that physical therapist. Once you've done the exercises, once you've lifted the weights, what do they do? They take the crutches away and they stand you on your own two feet. That's his goal, to stand us up eventually that we can operate autonomously as Adam was capable of doing prior to his fall. That's the plan for us. But we can't get there without our purposeful choices in that process. And it is a process of increasing the opportunities for us to exercise our faith. Now, why is he increasing those opportunities for us? Where is it leading toward? Where do we believe the world is heading? To a conclusion. To a conclusion, and what kind of uh, burdens will we face at, at that time in Earth's history? So do you see why it's necessary to actually experience some, some opportunities for exercising our faith now? If there were no trials, if there were no problems, if there were no issues, we wouldn't have anything upon which to strengthen ourselves. Do you understand? The actual lifting of a weight is called a stress. You're stressing your muscles. You're stressing them. And when you stress them, they rise to the occasion, they grow stronger. Well, what are specific steps we can take to increase our faith or trust? Anybody want to suggest any? I've got some listed here, but anybody want to suggest any? And I notice when, I, when I'm out of town and I'm tuning in on the, and I tune in and watch when I'm able to when I'm out of town, there seems to be a lot more discussion when I'm not here. <laughs> Have you all noticed that too? <laughs> So any any thoughts on on how we can steps steps things we can specifically do that are designed to increase our faith. One was mentioned earlier. There's a law by beholding we become changed so spending time getting to know God. Life eternal is that we meant no. So spending time getting to know God, understanding his design, contemplating his methods, looking for how his his principles work in the world around us and lives and people around us. Uh taking in the significance. Wow, okay, that really does work. That, when that happens, this happens. Okay. And that helps us grow and mature. Yes. And for me, history helps a lot. Or It's like flying a plane. If you didn't keep course correcting by looking at your, your location where you want to go, you would end up even a slight bit here would lead you to a big bit when you wanted to get where you were going. So when, I, when you start to drift, when I start to drift a little bit, looking back at, at my course helps me to, you know, correct and go like, I remember how this was answered. I remember this miracle there. I remember this in my family. And, and go kind of the Bible calls it, look at the way marks. If you, get, if you start to drift off, the thing that builds faith is knowing I, I'm, I'm confronted by this horrible issue now. But look in the past when I was sort of in a similar situation or somebody I love or know or was talking to was in that this happened, you know, they, they, uh, it was a, an amazing answer. Somehow, uh, strength was given to face it. This, this is huge. This is huge. This is, this is critical. I would encourage you that to make this part of your weekly routine to reflect back on God's providences and leadings and deliverances in the past. Uh, if you've heard this statement before, we have nothing to fear for the future. Save, we forget where the Lord has led in the past. Nothing to fear unless we forget 
the Lord's leading in the past. But we remember the Lord's leading in the past, as you're saying, then we don't have to fear the challenges of the future. Why? Because when we remember the Lord's leading in the past, we're not actually just simply looking at the solution to a particular problem. We're remembering the one who's delivered over and over and over and over and over. We may not know the solution to this problem, but we remember his leadings in the past, his deliverances in the past, and so we remember he's got a solution we can't even see. So it's primarily not faith in the knowledge we've learned from the past, which might be important and might be applicable in a certain circumstance, but our faith is really in the one who has been leading in the past. That's a great one. Faith is strengthened by works. How do you like that? Faith is strengthened by works. If you don't work, your faith is weak. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it kind of provocatively on purpose, but, but I want to show you the law involved here, the design protocol, the law of exertion, the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. These are design laws on how God has constructed his universe. And so how can we demonstrate how works strengthen faith? One of the first uh, would be prayer. I think um, our, you know, our writer said that uh, the person that prays only <clears throat> will soon cease to pray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you pray only. And you know, we can get one of those, the stylites. Remember the stylites in history? They didn't want to sin, so they, they built, you know, uh, uh, these, these, um, uh, pillars where they put little houses on top of the pillar to elevate themselves out from the influence of the sinful world. And they lived as hermits up there and they lowered buckets down where people put food up and down for them. And they lived up here on these little pillars so they would, in, in prayer their whole life. And they never associated with people below. Because they didn't want to sin. See, they were really committed to living a holy life. Does that sound desirable to anybody? No, this is what you're talking about. Yes. Um, it's same in human relations. Think about it. If God gives us a providence for us, uh, some, some direction, some instruction of some kind, and then we go and actually do it, and we experience the success, we experience the reward, we experience the strengthening, we experience the growth, we experience the the deliverance because we're following God's will, that experience makes us confident that this was the way to go. So even in our human relationships, how many of you have ever taught somebody, you're, you're, te- you're in a teaching role, and you're teaching a student, and the, and, and, and the student is questioning, why? Why? It doesn't make sense. Why should I have to? Anybody ever had a student or a child? And how many times have you gotten to the point you simply said, trust me, just do it, trust me? How many times have you ever said that? And how many of you have been on the receiving end of that growing up? And so you did, you trusted, you did it, and it worked. It, came, it worked out just like they said. Did that experience of doing it, actually doing it, increase your confidence and faith? Yes, it did. This is part of the process as well. When, when we do it, when we apply it, and we see how it works, our confidence and faith grows. If we never actually put into practice what God says, we don't get the benefit, the healing, the blessing, the growth, the maturation, and therefore we don't get increasing faith, trust, and confidence in God. It's only by putting it into practice that we see the benefits reap the fruits of it that our faith and confidence grows. Does that make sense? Well, here is a historical perspective. I don't remember the abbreviation for this. It's CCH. Anybody know what that stands for? CCH. CCH, page 305. We, we all desire immediate and direct answers to our prayers and are tempted to become discouraged when the answers, when the answer is delayed or comes in an unlooked for form. But God is too wise and good to answer our prayers always just the, uh, at just the time and in just the manner we desire. He will do more and better for us than to accomplish all our wishes. Did you hear that? I think that's profound. He will do more and better for us than to accomplish all of our wishes. How many parents have done more and better for their children than to accomplish all their child's wishes? Isn't it true? Yeah. CCH is Council for the Church. Councils for the Church. Thank you. Page 305. Yeah. May I just share a verse in here that cracked me up when I read it, but... It's Moses and Exodus, and the, the Egyptians are coming up after them before the Red Sea. They're, they're being trapped, and uh, Moses tells the people, you know, the Lord's going to deliver, stand firm, and then he, uh, then the Lord, uh, then he turned and started talking to the Lord. After he told the people, the Lord will fight for you, 
the Lord says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people, move on. <laughs> you know, stop talking to me and move out, you know, and do something. Do what I tell you to do. Take action. Apply what you already know. It's good. He will do more and better for us than to accomplish all our wishes. And because we can trust his wisdom and love, we should not ask him to concede to our will. Boy, I could tell some stories now. How many of you could tell stories about that? But should seek to enter into and accomplish his purpose. That's what we should be seeking, to enter into and accomplish his purpose. Our desires and interests should be lost in his will. These experiences that test faith are for our benefit. By them, it is made manifest whether our faith is true and sincere, resting on the word of God alone, or whether, depending on circumstances, it is uncertain and changeable. Pause. I'm gonna, what does that mean? True and sincere faith means what? Versus um, depending on circumstances. It means true and sincere faith means you know him. And you trust him regardless of what is actually transpiring around you. Whereas... Um, faith based on circumstances is just that. We have faith when things are going well, and we use the circumstances as evidence that God is blessing us. This would be very much health, wellness, gospel stuff, that as long as we're rich and healthy, then we're blessed of God. And if we have sickness and, and, and financial difficulties, then somehow God has abandoned us. And, and if we don't get a healing when we're sick, then we question whether we have faith or not. I mean, this is not real faith. Real faith says, hey, you know what? God has a plan, and I trust him. So if you look through Scripture... The miracles done in Scripture were almost always done for the weak in faith through the strong in faith. The miracles were not for the strong in faith. They were for, most of the time, the weak in faith. Gideon needed his fleeces because his faith was strong and he was confident, or even his faith needed encouraging. Why did he need the, the miracles? His faith needed encouraging. It was, it was wavering. Um, you look at um, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The miracle of their deliverance from the fiery furnace. They said prior to going in, we know that our God can deliver us from the fire, O Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. Did their faith need encouraging or was their faith confident? They were willing to die. They, they didn't need encouraging. Who was the miracle for? Nebuchadnezzar, it was through that miracle, he saw one who was the son of God and he was converted. It was for his weak faith that the miracle was given. How about Daniel in the lion's den? Who was the miracle for? Daniel? No, he is righteous. It was for Darius and it reached Darius, another sovereign. And we see this all through. The apostles, only John had a miracle to save his life. The other 11 were died as martyrs, yet through them many other miracles were formed. How many miracles did Jesus perform in his own behalf? None. Now, evidently, God sent the angel to miraculously deliver him on multiple occasions. But the miracles he performed were not for him. He didn't need the miracles. His faith was strong. And so one of, the, one of these ideas, that's, that's what it means here, that our faith is dependent upon knowing God, not upon the circumstances or evidences going on around us. And then the final sentence here. Faith is strengthened by exercise. We must let patience have its perfect work, remembering that there are precious promises in Scripture for those who wait upon the Lord. Faith is strengthened by exercise. That's what I meant when I said faith is strengthened by work. By choosing to exercise the faith, it gets stronger. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. Yes. I was struck, I'm struck by the uh, parallels between the scientific uh, methodology and, and the faith and works uh, 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 I, metaphor you're giving. That we can make observations in nature, we can read scripture, we can make observations from our own personal experience, but unless we do the experimentation, which is the works part, then we might draw erroneous conclusions. Or, or, or on a, on a, the exper experiencing slash experimenting side, we can study all there is to know about swimming, but until we get in the water and swim, we don't know how to swim. Right. And we'll drown when the, when, when the boat goes down and it's time to swim. We might, we might have studied it all, we might have seen it, we might have confidence, we might know about it, but if we've never actually experienced it, then when the boat goes down, we drown. And so there's this aspect of we haven't, we've understood, we've studied, we know all about faith, we, we teach doctrine on faith, but we've never exercised faith. And when the troubles come, maybe we drown. There's a place for exercising, is what you're saying, yes. 
Tip talk just a little bit about the concept of God sending trials to test us or God simply using the trials that come anyway to grow, help us grow. Okay, this is great. Next Sunday's lesson. That's right where we're going. Thank you. It says, um, third paragraph. It says, in short, we need to look through and beyond each trial and visualize the result God intends. That is where faith comes from. We need to believe in a loving a father relying on his wisdom and act on the basis of his word, we can safely entrust our future to him. In fact, only through faith, through knowing through knowing for ourselves God's love and living by faith in light of that love, could we ever possibly rejoice in our trials. No doubt trials are used to strengthen our faith. So the question, does that mean all trials are from God? No. And exactly, Job. In Job chapter 1, we see... Before any trial or difficulty, God makes a judgment about Job. He is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. Does that sound like an immature faith or a mature faith? He already his faith is mature. And then you, of course, see what plays out behind the scenes and what's going on. But de- um, Job demonstrates that no trial could shake him. His faith was mature. And those trials were not designed to mature his faith. His faith was already mature. He actually stands, in my view, as an example of the final people who live on earth before the second coming. Just like them, there is a judgment or a diagnosis or a determination from God. Hey, these people are mature. They're so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually. Nothing can shake them from it. No amount of, no amount of abuse or mistreatment. They are loyal to me and they will stay loyal to me. Uh, let he who is righteous stay righteous still. And let he who is wicked stay wicked still. This is the people at the final time of earth's history. And the gloves come off. Satan gets some freedom to attack just like he did Job. Trials and tribulations come. And just like Job, we stay faithful because those trials are not intended to mature our faith. Our faith is already matured. Nevertheless, Job thought they were coming from God. And yes. when he spoke face to face with God, God never said what really happened. He never blamed Satan. He didn't say, it's not me. I didn't do it. He did it. He just said, trust me. Well, let, let, let's... This and that and the other thing. It isn't recorded whether God ever yeah, said. But, I mean, but, but since God did restore to him everything... You know, he got he got children back, he got his wealth back, he got his health back, and all was eventually restored. There may have been a conversation, just wasn't recorded. We don't know. Yeah, and looking through though his trial, all through while he was going through it, he never he always really thought it was coming from God, but he didn't blame God. And I just find it interesting that when God finally had a conversation with him, as it's recorded in Job, God never does put the blame on Satan. He never does say, you know, I really didn't do this, but here's what I did do. I did this, I did that, I created, I did... But well, see, you open up a whole other can of worms. Trust me. <laughs> and, that is, and that is the historical context of human history and where people were at that time and why God spoke the way he did in the Old Testament. Because of the darkness of the people's minds, because they were polytheistic, because they believed that there were actual multiple gods that had real power, God took upon himself responsibility for both the, the good and the bad so that he could bring them, solidify them and their, their, their certainty that there was only one God. And so you find this happening in the Old Testament, that, that he takes responsibility for things. And you can see it described all through the Testament, all through the Old Testament, where in one place God permits something to happen, like Saul commits suicide. And, and then later in the same verse, God puts him to death. And God is taking responsibility for things he simply permits. And we find this all through the scripture. And so in the book of Job, this is the mindset of the people that you're seeing, that they view all evil and all acts of, of, of destruction coming from God. It wasn't necessarily, in fact, that, that in fact, it, it was necessarily that it was not the case. But God permitted that to happen at that time because of the condition of the mindset of the people. He did not want to foster the idea that there were powerful other beings that were worthy of worship. Well, where I was going with that was God basically said, trust me. If I can do this and this and this, trust me. Well, he didn't exactly say that either. He had conversations with Job and said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the heavens? Uh, you're questioning me and questioning my ways. And, and you, you, can you explain how the cosmos works? Can you explain the laws of nature? I mean, you, you know, there's so much more going on here. So he gave some reasons for that as well. Yes. So can you say that all good comes from God and all bad comes from Satan? All good comes from God and all bad comes from deviation from God's design. Satan is the author, author of those deviations from God's design, but many uh, intelligent beings, including humans, can choose to deviate of their own free will, even without the prompting of Satan. And I think if God took Satan off the earth right now and evaporated him from existence, evil would not disappear on earth. So um, I, I would say it that way. So Satan, all good comes from, all good comes from God. And all good comes from God, I, it's no question. And all evil comes from deviation from God's design, which 
It was initiated by Satan, but is perpetuated by free moral beings. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Um, so Job, though, it's a great, great example of cases. And Job did have some, didn't have a perspective that we have. So we have an advantage going into the end of time that Job didn't have. We have a perspective. We can see things from a larger landscape that Job evidently couldn't see. And that gives us some greater confidence in what's transpiring. I think that's a great point. So what prepares us for the larger trials that we will face or the smaller ones? It's like what Olympic powerlifters don't go into the weight room on day one and pick up 500 pounds. They don't. They start with smaller weights and they work up and they work up and they work up. If we plan on, and you hear this, you know what, I'll believe when, when the time of trouble comes, then I'll, then I'll trust the Lord. How many have heard this? When the time of trouble comes, then I'll trust the Lord. Because I, I know it's right, I just don't want to get there now. Just before they die. That's like saying, when, well, when, when we go to the Olympics, then I'll lift 500 pounds. I won't, I won't train, I won't work up, I won't do anything, I'll just wait to the Olympics and then I'll lift 500 pounds. It's not going to work out so well for most people. It's going to be very difficult. Now, is there any inherent benefit, inherent benefit in trials and tribulations? Have you ever heard things like, no pain, no gain? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Pain is fertilizer for the soul. Have you heard these statements? What are these an acknowledgement of? These are acknowledgements of the law of exertion. That That there is positive benefit from going through difficulties. Thus, people can rejoice in our trials and tribulations in Scripture. Rejoice. There can be an inherent rejoicing. Just being a people who don't know God can rejoice in trials and tribulations. They can. But do we have an advantage to rejoice much more if we know God? Yes. What advantage is there, and how can we rejoice to a deeper level when we know God in trials and tribulations? Tribulations. Because we... Source of strength. Because we, we're not alone in the, tribu- in the trial. Number one, we're not by ourselves. Number two, we have promised that, that no temptation will take you that is beyond your ability to handle. So you know you're going to have the strength to overcome it. Number three, you know there's a larger perspective being worked out here. Maybe for your own good. Maybe you're right now a, a, an envoy, a messenger for God who he's putting you in a position to reach somebody who would never be reached for his kingdom and you allow for that possibility. So you have purpose. You have, and you understand when you're in tribulation, when you're in trials, that it's much easier to handle if you understand there's a purpose to it meaninglessness suffering without meaning is difficult suffering when you know you're doing something people will hold out under torture if they know they're saving the life of their children yeah there's a purpose and also it develops compassion i find myself wishing all doctors and nurses had to be patients first so that they could so that they could <laughs> So that they could understand. Now that you've been a patient, you probably know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Lori, you remember, remember in nursing school they made us put NG tubes down each other? Yeah, they don't do that anymore, I understand. That was back in the dark ages. They made you put it down each other's nose. It's like, this was mean and un- cruel and unusual punishment, man. It was awful. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Monday's, Monday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, uh, uh, read James 1, 2 through 4. Notice the progression. Faith. Testing, patience, perfection. James begins with faith because that is the foundation of all true Christian experience. Then he says we need trials to test the genuineness of our faith. Lastly, James states that trials can teach us perseverance so that eventually we will not be caught by surprise and overcome by them. God's goal for us is that we may be perfect and complete, not uh, lacking nothing. Language cannot be loftier. The word perfect means spiritual maturity, while complete refers to wholeness in every way. So what is our faith based upon? I want you to walk out of here understanding. What is our faith based upon? Relationship. God. God. And his love. And his love. Past experiences. Past experience. All these are true. Every bit of this is true. And can we sum it all up and say evidence? Evidence of a healthy relationship. Evidence of a trustworthy God. Evidence of the deliverances in the past. In other words, it's evidence-based. And so this idea that faith is without evidence is a lie. It's a lie. Uh, if you think about this war between Christ and Satan, where's the battlefield? It's in the mind. Satan is the father of? So how much truth supports Satan's arguments? How much truth supports God? 
who is the source of all truth. So if you're Satan and you're trying to get people's, into people's minds and get them to believe you, do you want them developing strategies that search for truth? No. So you want to put out things that sound lofty and holy. We have faith. We don't need evidence. We have faith. We believe. We just believe. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. If we ask questions, if you ask questions, why are you asking so many questions? Don't you know that that's a sign of lack of faith? You shouldn't have to question God if you have faith. Reason must submit to the scripture. And the scripture said it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be reasoning about it. Uh, this, is, this is what I got. When I started asking questions about why we teach certain things, there, here comes a Bible verse. Now, you must submit your reason to that Bible verse. I said, well, what about the other Bible verse? It says, come let us reason together. But your sins are like scarlet, little white like snow. Where everybody should be fully persuaded in their own mind or the mature have developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. I said, what good does it do to know a Bible verse if we have no idea what it means? It's like the child who quotes the, the, uh, the Bible verse that, uh, you know, Jesus died as a propitiation. And you go, what does that mean? I don't know. I just had to memorize the verse. What good does it do? So there's a very fine line between suffering and not knowing why we're going, what we're going through, and a blind faith of kind of what we've been taught, which is it kind of puts you at a higher Christian level if you have faith with no questioning on anything. And yeah. there's fine lines there. Have any of you in a relationship with a loved one, say your husband, wife, somebody, been to a, I will say a surprise of some sort where they blindfolded you? And said, and took you by the hand to lead you into a room, or has anybody had an experience like that? Nobody? Nobody had a loved one blindfold them and take them somewhere. Okay? Now, you were blinded to where you were going, but were you blind to who was leading you? No. Okay. And that's the question. You see, the question is not specifically where are we going, the question is who are we trusting? Satan wants us to trust a God that we're blind to. A God that we never question. A God that we don't understand. A God that we don't know. A God who's a dictator, power monger, says do it or else. A God that we fear. He wants to incite fear. Because when we fear, what does fear do to your ability to trust? Even, even, even with somebody like your own husband who's got you blindfolded, if something causes you to become afraid, what are you going to do? You're reaching up to take off the blindfold, aren't you? Fear, that's what fear does. Perfect love, however, casts out all fear. And that's a relational dynamic. I'm coming to understand and experience God, and that is evidence-based, experiential. That is not blind. We are, we are never to be blind in our relationship and trust in God. Does that help? So here are some historical quotes. This is the first one's out of Steps to Christ, page 105. God never... How often? Never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. Isn't that profound? His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. There's that reason thing. And this testimony is abundant, yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. What's the difference between evidence and demonstration? Evidence has already happened. Ah, evidence is often historic. That's right. Looking into nature, the laws of nature, the historical life of Jesus Christ, all these evidences, evidences, providences in our own life where we've been led in the past, all these evidences we have. An evidence would, would be uh, a Michelangelo painting or sculpture is evidence of Michelangelo's work. Evidence is a document and demonstration. Demonstration, however, is saying, I don't believe Michelangelo did that until I see it. Michelangelo's got to come here right now and do one in front of me, and I won't believe it until I see it. That's the difference. Here's another one. Testimonies, Volume 4, 232. God gives sufficient evidence for the candid mind to believe. Or, Signs of the Times, December 30, 1886. Here is the test which may apply if they, which, which all may apply if they will. None need be left in uncertainty and doubt. Would you like to not be left in uncertainty and doubt. None need. Here, here's the, 
there is always sufficient evidence upon which to base an intelligent faith. Oh, is there an unintelligent faith out there? Have you ever seen an unintelligent faith? You know, believe in things that you know ain't so. As uh, Mark Twain said, the little boys, what faith is. Believe in things that are nonsense. Believe in things that are actually antithetical. Against, if, you, if one is true, it makes the other one false, and people believe them anyway. God is love, and he only wants you to love him. But if you don't, he'll burn you in hell forever. Or, the Adventist version, he'll burn you as long as you disturb where he kills you. It's antithetical. It can't be true. Why can't that be true? It's a violation of design law. You cannot have love under coercion and threat. Try to get your spouse to love you more by saying, hey, you know, I've been married to you for 36 years now, and we've had a great time together, and I just want our love to grow to deeper and more permanent levels. So if I ever think you don't love me while you're sleeping, I'm pouring gas on you and lighting you on fire. Oh, now you're warming my heart. (laughs) No pun intended. Yes. See? But God does have a kind of annoying tendency to wait till the very last minute to solve, to bring an answer to your prayers. <laughs> Did you hear that? Uh, yeah. I noticed that over and over again. It just waits to the bitter end, and all of a sudden... There are times when I wish his communication skills were a little bit... <laughs> And, and, you know, I've wondered about this. Seriously, guys, this, this idea of God, these guys, God communicating to us, I've really processed this at some length. And, and on one side of it, I think oftentimes we are poor receivers. We are so filled and so busy with things of the world that, you know, it says, be still and know that I am the Lord. Uh, when Elijah was seeking a word from the Lord, there was an earthquake and a fire and, and um, a wind, and, and the Lord wasn't any of it. He was in the Still small voice. God doesn't want to intimidate us. He doesn't want to frighten us. And so he speaks quietly to us, gently to us. And oftentimes we don't slow down enough to hear it. This is one side of it. But on the other side of it, I also looked in scripture and I saw, well, you know what? Angels came and visited Daniel and angels came and visited Saul on the road to, on the road to Damascus. And, and I thought, well, why, you know, Lord, you know, come on, man. I'd like to have a conversation with my angel right now. Uh, right now I want to talk to my angel. It didn't happen. I just have to tell you, I might. I didn't need Haldol, okay? Did not happen. Did not have some experience with a supernatural being. But I asked, how many, come on, has anybody, am I the only one ever asked for this? <laughs> but then I realized why it didn't happen. Because I don't know the ability to tell the difference between one of Satan's angels and one of God's angels. I don't know how to tell them apart. If an angel just appears to me manifesting physical light and glory, which Satan did to Jesus, if you remember, it happened. Here he comes as an angel of light to Jesus, manifests himself to him. How am I to tell the difference? How can you tell the difference? Now, yes, we can have a conversation. We can interrogate them. But are we advised to interrogate evil angels and converse with them? Or are we advised not to because they can deceive us? They're so subtle. And so I realize that God doesn't do this because... We aren't very good at telling the difference, number one. Number two, I realize, because it doesn't really help us develop our thinking circuits to have someone tell us all the answers. If you're a math teacher, do you help your, te- your students the most by going down and writing all the right answers down to all the questions so they will get them right on the exam? Or do you help them most by showing them the problem and then letting them work the problems? Yeah, but if you're a football player, you have a coach. Yes, and we've been given. Think of the resources we've been given. We've given. We've been given scripture. We've been given the writings of Ellen White. We've been given so many things to help help us along the way. But the question is, were they that much better back then? If they could discern between the good and the bad angels? No, they had less evidence than we do. They didn't have the scriptures that we have. They didn't have the history that we have. And there were specific people chosen by God to be his spokespersons, to be the conduit, the avenue through which he could provide the evidence for the rest of us to mature and grow in. There are some Christians today that think the uh, Samuel that showed up with the witch of Endor and Saul was the real Samuel. Yes. That's evidence that they feel like, you know, there are ghostly things going around and that was real Samuel. This is why it said it wasn't, but there was an incident of an angel showing up and people believing the angel. Yeah, exactly. Samuel. Tuesday, what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is knowing the facts. Excuse me, knowledge is knowing the facts of the data or the information. Wisdom is knowing how to apply those facts in reasonable and appropriate ways. So, for instance, knowledge is knowing a tomato is fruit. And wisdom is knowing it doesn't go in a fruit salad. 
<laughs> or knowledge is knowing <clears throat> smoking is damaging. Wisdom is knowing not to smoke. How many smokers know it's damaging but smoke anyway? Isn't it true? I, in fact, I don't know a smoker anymore that doesn't know it's damaging. So they have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. Or knowledge is knowing Jesus is God. Wisdom is knowing to trust him. The devils believe and tremble. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. When he, They have knowledge. They don't have wisdom. Knowledge is knowing God is love and, God, and his law is love. <clears throat> wisdom is knowing how to put love into effective action. When to give and when it's most loving not to give. Because to give would injure or enfeeble. Do you understand what I mean by that? When to withhold. Jesus withheld, said to his apostles, I have much to tell you, but you can't bear it. That's wisdom. Love is giving. Wisdom is knowing when and how to give. James tells us that any of us lack wisdom. We should ask, but not doubt when we ask. Bottom pink section says, we must ask in faith, not doubting. Isn't that sometimes hard? Who doesn't at times struggle with doubt? When that happens, what's crucial is to pray and start dwelling on all the reasons for faith, the story of Jesus. Um, I'm going to read to you James 1, 2 through 8 about this from my paraphrase and see if this helps with this question of doubting. My brothers and sisters in the family of God, I want you to rejoice and keep a positive attitude whenever you face troubles of various kinds because every trial exercises your trust in God, which overcomes fear and selfishness and builds a confident, steadfast application of the remedy. And this steadfast engagement in God's treatment must be completed so that you may be fully healed, mature, and like Christ in character, not lacking anything. If any of you don't understand God's methods, are confused in your thinking, or lack wisdom, Ask God because he, without pointing out defects, enthusiastically gives to all who asks, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, ask with a certain knowledge that he longs to give, not wavering back and forth in fear and uncertainty like a fishing bobber tossed about on the ocean waves. For your fear will obstruct your ability to receive what he longs to give. Those consumed by fear will not think they can deserve anything from the Lord. They are unstable, controlled by emotions, and can't make up their minds about anything. When we doubt, what happens to our ability to embrace and apply wisdom when we doubt? See, what is the motive for doubting? What is the emotion of doubt? Isn't fear? And fear obstructs. And it's not just with God. Think about any human relationship you're in. If somebody gives you something and tells you this is going to do work, how many doctors have had patients who doubted them? I need you to go home and I need you to apply this. I remember watching an old John Wayne movie, um, The Horse Soldiers. It's an old John Wayne movie. Mm-hmm. And in there, there was a doctor who uh, was, uh, it was a Civil, Civil War movie, Union troops, and one of the guys got shot in the leg. And he took the bullet out, and he, and he tied some green moss around the leg and told the guy to leave the green moss on the leg. Mm-hmm. And you know what the moss was for? To have like an antibacterial effect. A mold of some kind that, that produces things like penicillin and so forth. That was the intent of the movie, whether it worked in real life or not, I don't know. But, but the, the guy didn't, didn't have confidence in the doctor. He, he took it off and later saw him limping, and guess what? The leg was gangrene. And he had to amputate, and the guy died in the movie. Why? Because he didn't trust the doctor. He doubted him. You see, God will tell us always what's good for us. He never tells us things to do that are harmful to us, ever. But if we doubt him, then can we grow by that? Or does that doubt undermine our ability and our willingness to apply, engage, and move forward? That's why we don't get the wisdom if we doubt. Not because God is withholding. He's still pouring out his wisdom. But we won't apply it, engage it, so we don't grow in it. Make sense? Yes. One of my favorite sayings from the sporting world is, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both correct. If you think, oh, I can't do this, I can't, I can't jump that high, I can't run that fast, you're probably correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, no, that's, that's great. 
Wednesday's lesson is about doubt, and, and I thought I would ask, what is it that contributes to doubt? And I have a list of things that magnify or enhance your doubt. And then I've got a list of some solutions to that, so I'll run through them because we only have a few minutes left. Number one thing that in, in, contributes to doubt is lack of information or ignorance. If you're ignorant, then, then you're more likely to doubt. The more you understand, the more knowledge, the more information, the less doubt you have. Lies. Lies contribute to doubt. If somebody lies to you about your spouse and you believe the lies, you begin to doubt them. The so lies contribute to doubt. That's what happened to Eve. And they lied and Eve doubted God's goodness because of lies. Immaturity. Immaturity contributes to doubt. And I won't go into all the different levels of immaturity, but think about those levels of, of right and wrong decision making. You know, it's, it's right if you, if you get rewarded wrong, if you get punished. Immature thinking leads to doubt. Lack of experience. What was said earlier, never putting into practice anything you've been told. You've never experienced anything. You've only, you've only been that good student who's gone to church every week, memorized all their memory verses, gone to the Bible schools, gotten your diploma, gotten A's on every exam, but you've never actually applied anything. You know, you're not prepared to handle life. Lack of a relationship with God. You've got a knowledge of data. It's like, uh, if you think about life eternal as knowing God, it's not knowing about God. It's actually knowing him. Many people study their whole lives to know about God, but they've never actually known him. So if you think we can go into uh, the resources available on the Internet, and we can find out lots about George Bush or, or Barack Obama or any of these world leaders. But how many of us actually know them? We may know about them, but that's not the same as knowing them. And many people have fallen into the trap of learning about God but never actually getting to know him. And if you don't know him, then, of course, you're going to doubt him. Patterns of thinking. History of believing things without evidence or believing things. You have a pattern of, of, of establishing your mind that you believe things on claims, on proclamations, without evidence, things that are actually contradictory, and that's how your mind has been established to work, then that's going to in, engender lots of doubts. History of having your previously held beliefs proved false in the context of absolutism. In other words, you're one of these people who, you know, um, Sister White is a prophet. Prophets never make mistakes. And everything she said is inspired from God. And then something comes along and you find that there's an inconsistency that doesn't fit your paradigm. Suddenly everything collapses because you've got rigidity in your thinking and it doesn't fit your paradigm anymore. And that relates also to uh, a work ethic. If you're lazy or if you're willing to work through... Pro- yes, it does. Problems we cannot explain. Problems that come to us that we have no explanation for will engender doubt. I see this in the scientific community. Many people look into science and geology, other places. They'll see a piece of data, some fact that they can't fit into their current understanding, and that causes doubt. And then feelings of insecurity or fear. What are some of the solutions? I'm going to have to run through this real fast. Evidence, obviously. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Inform yourself with as much evidence as you can. The more evidence as you have, then, then the, the less uh, uh, ignorance. And, and that builds a platform for confidence. Truth, which is different than evidence. And we don't have time to explore those differences. Experience. Actually put into application and experience the benefit of applying and living in harmony with design law. Practice thinking for yourself and weighing out the evidence. Not believing on the testimony of others only. Um, identify testable laws, understand the principles and how things are built, accept one's limitations and finiteness, allowing for answers beyond what you currently know. Um, and this is one of the beauties of medicine. You see, doctors accept they're finite. And, they, and they're always looking for new data, new science, new perspectives, new evidences that will allow them to let go of an old way of thinking of it and bring in a new way that's healthier and more accurate with the evidences and facts. In religion, however, it's often not that way. We have already established this is the truth. Any new evidence must be rejected because it contradicts something we've held for 500 years in the church. Okay, And this then sets us up to have these little rigid boxes that don't work when reality begins to bear in. And so people will begin to doubt then, and they'll begin doubt, doubting God because their view and their construct of how the universe works isn't really working in reality around them. So then there's some more in here. I'll let, leave that for you guys. And there's a whole section in here on the basis for our trusting God, but we're already out of time. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of truth, love, 
freedom, that you actually respect our intelligence and you're not going to use your power simply to make us into robots, but that you have willingly, and at great cost to yourself, given us evidences that appeal to our reason, Lord. Send your spirit to enlighten our mind. Help connect the dots. We can put the, put the picture together that we can see with discernment and wisdom and apply it to our lives and experience the transformation that comes from participating in your methods. We pray in your holy name. Amen.